BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. My guest today is Jessica Donati. Jessica is a Wall Street Journal national security reporter and the author of the book Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War, where she takes readers into the lives of U.S. Special Forces on the front lines against the Taliban and ISIS. The book has been described as powerful, important, and searing by General David Petraeus. This is the fifth episode in our special series about Afghanistan this week on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Let's start with your book. Uh, You published a book this year, Eagle Down, The Last Special Forces Fighting the Forever War. Before we talk about the important topics in your book, if you had the opportunity to write an epilogue since your book was published in January this year and a lot has happened tragically or even over the last several weeks, a lot of terrible things have happened. What would you cover in this epilogue? I think it's hard to know just because it's still ongoing. We're still uh, a couple of days out from the U.S. being um, fully out. We don't yet know what shape the Taliban government's going to take, how conservative it will be, what kind of access uh, there will be to the airport and whether Afghans will still be free to leave. So I think um, it's really hard to look back right now. But what I can say is that it is really uh, upsetting and frustrating, not just for me, but for all the soldiers uh, and the service, other servicemen and women and families um, that uh, took part in the book to watch what's happening now. And everyone feels like this was predictable and avoidable. And the loss of life and suffering that uh, we're seeing now is really hard to watch. How long were you posted in Afghanistan? So I first went there in 2012 um, after I covered the war in Libya, the uprising. Um, They sent me there for a little bit and uh, I returned to live there in 2013. Uh, I I did two years with Reuters and then I moved over to the Wall Street Journal and I ran the Kabul Bureau for two years. And then I went back again in 2019 to work on my book. So you've been posted in at least two hotspots. What makes somebody take such a dangerous position, which of course allows people like me and others, my listeners, to understand what's going on in these hotspots. I mean, you must have some um, ability to be able to withstand danger in order to share information. what's, What's it like? It was never my plan. I got sent to Libya by accident. I had just started at Reuters and being um, from Italy and also covering uh, energy, which was my beat uh, when I had just started out at Reuters, Libya was a big oil war in which Italy was heavily involved. And so I seemed like a natural fit to be sent over there. And when they asked me to go, I was really undecided because I never really thought about going to a war zone. And uh, the first uh, time, my first impact with the streets of Tripoli, which had just fallen, I was so afraid because everywhere there were kids with big guns and random checkpoints and nobody knew who anybody was. And it was really frightening. But what I found was that within hours and certainly days, I became really um, acclimatized to the risk and I became more and more tolerant to more and more risk. And 
that allows you to function as a journalist and to focus on the story and getting the information straight and trying to think clearly about what you're looking at. The reasons that you do keep going back are both um, good and bad. Uh, on on one hand, uh, you know, these are really powerful stories. And if you feel like you can tell them, then uh, then you want to be there. Uh, the other thing is that when you go back home, it's really difficult to then adjust back to life just covering, um, you know, what, whatever you cover day to day, because uh, war really does bring out the best and the worst in people. And when you've seen all of that color going back home is really difficult. It also becomes harder to relate to people around you. So you end up going back again and again. Yeah, hearing you say that, it makes me feel bad. I had a, a very tough decision whether to leave the corporate world uh, to join President Trump at the White House for three years. And my equation wasn't simple either. I was leaving my wife and kids. I have six kids moving to Washington. You know, these were difficult decisions for me, but I wasn't going into a danger zone like you. So uh, thank you. Thank you for doing what you did and sharing the rough stories of the world. And I guess it does put it into perspective, I suppose, when you're online at a Starbucks and the line's a bit long, it doesn't matter anymore, given what you've seen and had to live through. When I first came to Washington uh, after being in Afghanistan for four years, it just blew my mind how people would walk around and go about their day without marveling at the fact that they were safe and that they didn't have to worry about being blown up at Starbucks or something bad happening. People were just kind of oblivious to that. And that for me was a huge adjustment, just not being in total wonder in a Starbucks. Why do you think so little attention is paid to Afghanistan and other hot zones until you have to pay attention like now? I think people get fatigued um, with bad news. Uh, it's really hard, even if you are in one war zone, to also follow what's going on in other war zones. Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of, of tragedy that people can absorb. And so I think in Afghanistan's case, it's been a 20-year war, which has had ups and downs. And after 20 years, people are tired of hearing about it, especially when it doesn't seem that things are changing very much, whether it's just the general trend of the Taliban getting stronger and things getting worse. That's just the story that it's been for years. And as a woman in Afghanistan, understanding that the Taliban weren't in control, how, was it extra dangerous for you? Or during those years, things were, relatively speaking, normal for women? For, I mean, it depended really a lot where you were. In the cities, women had a lot more freedom, Afghan women. Uh, in the provinces and in rural areas, especially in more conservative parts of Afghanistan, life for women probably hadn't changed that much between the Taliban and the Afghan government. There are still areas where women were not allowed to leave the home without a burqa, without a male guardian. So there was a huge range of experience for women there. As a female reporter, as a Westerner, you get treated differently from other from Afghan women. They see you as a sort of third gender uh, is one way of looking at it. So you don't get judged in quite the same terms. It also has the advantage that you have access to Afghan women, which you don't. If you're a male reporter, you're closed off to uh, half of the population pretty much because uh, the average Afghan woman would not really want to interact with a Western man. The other advantage is that you can go around under a burqa, which enables you to pass through Taliban areas without being stopped, because generally, even if the Taliban catches you at a checkpoint, they're not going to take ask you to take off your burqa or ask any questions. They'll just speak to your Afghan driver. And were you ever in any danger when you made these forays into Taliban-controlled territory? I mean, there were so many times when we were, uh, when we were definitely at risk. I mean, the most... Uh, 
the most immediate one was we uh, drove uh, through the Sarobi Valley um, near Kabul on the way to Jalalabad, uh, which is near the Pakistan, near the Pakistan border. And we got caught in a firefight and uh, the Taliban in the mountains started firing heavy machine guns down at a police truck that just happened to be passing us. And so uh, our car, we had like three um, bullets in the wheel and the car broke down. And so we ended up uh, having to stop to get it repaired in a garage in this little village that was Taliban controlled. And so, I mean, there were all sorts of points where that could have been really dangerous. But other times, you know, you're really, it's just about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, if we had been 10 meters ahead, uh, on that road, I probably wouldn't be here. Um, and there are other times where you're driving through areas, you're just hoping you don't get stopped or you get stopped and they let you through. Um, it's really hard to know. What does it mean when a journalist has to embed with a, with a group in order to cover a story? I mean, for us, uh, first of all, we would try and figure out why we were going and where we wanted to go. And uh, and then you had to figure out which uh, forces were leading, uh, had a leading role there, whether it was Afghan commandos. Uh, in some areas, for example, when there was fighting over the city of Kunduz, which changed hands a couple of times. Other times you would be, uh, you wanted to find out what was going on with Islamic State in the valleys where special forces were working with local militias and stuff. So you would try and embed with local militias. And so once you had identified the force, you would then reach out and see whether they'd be willing to let you accompany them. Um, and then you would just be along for the ride. They would, you know, put you in their car or, um, you know, in their truck. And uh, you just had to hang on and uh, see where it took you, which is why uh, when you saw recently, for example, um, the, the death of the Reuters reporter, in Helmand. It's one example of what can happen when uh, an embed with commanders, which looks good, it looks like they know what they're doing, but if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, the cost is really high. And does the Wall Street Journal and I guess, you know, major media newspapers and television and all that, do they have special rules to make sure that you can only embed just so far or are you pretty much free to make your own decisions? I mean, they give a lot of trust to the reporter in the field, especially if you've been out for a while. Uh, but ultimately, we don't go out with security. So you do have to make certain judgments on your own. Um, at the Wall Street Journal, you have uh, you have risk um, people who are in, in control or sort of who manage uh, risk for the organization. And so you discuss your plan in great detail with them. And then it uh, once the plan submitted with all the different contingencies, um, it has to get approved through the news desk. And so that it will go up all the way to basically the top of the paper when it's the most risky assignments. It'll have to get signed up, signed off by the, the person at the top. Could you share with us uh, a story or two about oh, women in Afghanistan, perhaps a moving story, a hopeful story? And it would be a conjecture, of course, but what you think is going to happen to those women now? I mean, for me, women in Afghanistan, um, there were two types. There was one, the the urban women who were young, who had grown up under uh, U.S. influence and who had all these ambitions about what they would study, what they would be. Uh, they had these goals and um, that was very inspiring. And then there was the other t kind of Afghan women who you would meet, which you would meet as a woman out um in the provinces on assignments, you'd be speaking to whatever local official or commander or 
warlord, whatever you want to call it. And he would say, oh, my wife wants to meet you. And so you would get taken round to the back and then you would be in a room with uh, one or two, three women and just loads of kids running around. And uh, and they were really excited to meet a foreigner. And, uh, you know, we would communicate in the little bit of diary that I spoke. And uh, and that was the other the other women who were generally not seen um, outside. Um, more recently, I mean, I've been following the case of uh, a female doctor who has the option to leave Afghanistan, and uh, she's trying to decide what to do because everyone, uh, all the women who are left behind, depend on her expertise for her health. And so, if she decides to leave. Um, who are they going to have to look after them? And so she's making this really heartbreaking decision and we'll have to see which way it goes. So let's talk about the people who want to leave and for now seem to be left behind. I assume you had either coworkers or friends who helped you, the Wall Street Journal, other uh, media companies and so on and so forth who are now stranded. Um, I know there's been a big push from the media organizations to try to get the Biden administration to focus on getting these people out. Do you have any hope that will succeed given how many people have to come out in order for this to work? I mean, for the Wall Street Journal, I mean, everybody who uh, we worked with and who asked for help has been evacuated. We um, brought out uh, something like 80 staff members and their families. And so, and that was through a huge effort across all of the newsroom, all of management to try and tie up visas and connections and flights and um, charter flights. And so for those guys, I think the three big papers who stayed behind in Afghanistan, which is the the Journal, the New York Times and the Post, they all got work together to get their people out. Uh, there are a lot of organizations that aren't doing the same. And uh, one of them, for example, is the UN with thousands of employees who want to get out and as I was saying, I think it depends on access to the airport. The Taliban have said that they want embassies to remain, that they do want to have relations with the international community. And so part of that will depend on giving people the freedom to leave. And so it's hard to know what the chances are, but I have not, uh, I mean, so many Afghans are really terrified of being stuck there and left behind. And you have to balance that against the optimism that you feel that you want to believe that the Taliban are going to be better this time around. So I've heard snatches of conversation that the Taliban are going to be better. They're making certain promises. You know them better than many. Do you think there's any sliver of truth to those promises? I mean, I think certainly there are parts of the Taliban that are a lot more moderate. Uh, for example, in the Doha group, um, there's one of them who has sent his daughters to university abroad. So that is a huge difference from a group that previously did not allow girls after puberty uh, or indeed times at all to go to school. Um, I think that's why it's so important to wait and see what the Taliban ends up looking like as a government, whether the extremely conservative, uh, more militant factions end up uh, having most of the power or whether the moderates, um, the moderates make it to the top. I don't even think that the Taliban have figured it out now. And many say that Afghanistan really can't be a unified country because it's too tribal. What's your experience and uh, position on that? I mean, I think this is a view that often you hear outsiders say whenever you suggest it to an Afghan, uh, they think it's a terrible idea to break up the country. And uh, while there are huge differences between the different ethnic groups, and as I was saying, between urban areas and rural areas, 
it doesn't seem to be a realistic prospect uh, for any of the people that live there. I noticed you retweeted a video of young Afghan girls being herded into a school building, seemingly a good PR move by the Taliban to show that women or girls are going to be going to school, and your tweet was pointing out that these were young girls. It's a little bit of a variation of the question we just spoke about, but do you think that women will be allowed to go back to university and to work? I mean, the Taliban haven't said yet uh, what their plan is. I think that for women to be able to go to university, they're likely to uh, not allow any kind of mixed education. And so any university that women could go to would have to be only for women. There would be no men allowed there. And so that already creates a problem because there are limited facilities and the facilities that exist are likely to go to um, to men. I think that some of the things that we've heard from Kabul, for example, women being turned away from their offices or being turned away from uh, from whatever they're trying to do is a sign that there are still uh, Taliban factions that don't want women to have freedom that is close to what we would consider to be an acceptable standard in the West. Um, I'm not hopeful, I would say, um, but I don't know. I noticed somebody comment about your book, that your book exposed the lies told to us. Can you describe what that reader was talking about? What kind of lies should Americans know that they were told? I mean, for me, what prompted me to write the book was a feeling of real, um, I guess, anger over the fact that the U.S. from 2015 onwards insisted that it was no longer at war in Afghanistan, that it was just a training mission and the government was basically standing on its own. And all of that was clearly uh, untrue to those of us on the ground. And they were increasingly relying on special operations to hold this entire thing together. And so I think that's why for many of the people involved in the book, um, it's really frustrating to see the mess that it's become because it was clear to everybody on the ground that as soon as you removed the support that the U.S. military was offering, the thing would collapse. At this point, I assume unless we push many forces in, and I don't mean forces to um, find and bring to justice those who murdered the American heroes yesterday and those who murdered Afghan civilians, men, women, and children, which was all a tremendous tragedy. Putting that action whenever it may happen, I hope it happens on the side. Uh, Is this a foregone conclusion? There's no turning this clock back now? I think it's difficult. I mean, the the problem with the with the ISIS issue is that it's very convenient to blame it all on ISIS, and ISIS, in fact, originated from the Taliban. ISIS is made up of former Taliban and Pakistani Taliban members and other people, and so the groups are not um, entirely isolated. For years in Afghanistan, when we would be covering these big attacks, the Taliban wouldn't claim uh, something that had a very high toll in civilians, and so ISIS would go ahead and claim it, and you had no real way of verifying whether it had in fact been the Taliban to carry out that terrorist attack or whether ISIS was opportunistically taking credit for it. And so I think everybody just wants to separate the problem between the two. Um, and I think that 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 would be that would be wrong. And um, I mean, the U.S. has been fighting ISIS in Afghanistan for a long time, with or without the Taliban government in control. And it's I don't think the attack is going to change the decision to leave. Let's zoom out a bit. Do you think the ripple effect to Afghanistan's neighbors is going to be very bad? And if so, how? 
I mean, for sure, all of the neighbours are preparing to have a huge influx of refugees, and it's unclear how the West um, is going to support these refugees and ensure that they get adequate uh, facilities, but not just that, also education, that they have some kind of plan for their future. Uh, what we see in the cases of huge numbers of refugees, like Syrian refugees, they've been stuck in camps and uh, their lives are basically on pause. And this makes them makes these places a breeding ground for extremism because young people are with no future become angry and they need to have a target for their anger. And I think if you end up having millions of refugees uh, in um, Pakistan or in Iran or in other neighboring countries um, in poor conditions, angry over uh, what happened, blaming the West for the way things have turned out in Afghanistan, that is a risk. Did you get to interact often with the U.S. military there? And if you did, what what did they feel about this mission? I mean, we had a different levels of interaction. Um, we interacted a lot, obviously, with the um, with the press uh, with the press office, and that was led by generally a general. So it was quite a high position, and so. On that side, you had a lot of people trying to sell you the war and that things were going well. And that, as I mentioned, it wasn't, they were no longer really at war. There were just training missions and they were denying the fact that the U.S. had this critical role in keeping the country together. Uh, when we could get access to U.S. soldiers, which was generally by um, embedding with Afghan soldiers who were working with them, and then you could speak to them or you might, might catch them on the side. And people, I mean, soldiers generally shared your view that things were not sustainable. And people were were angry about the fact that uh, at the top, nobody was really acknowledging the situation on the ground or addressing it. President Biden had made a comment, I don't remember the exact quote, but essentially saying that the Afghan forces lost their will to fight. I had a guest or two on the show this week who were upset because they pointed out that 60 to 70,000 Afghan forces and other policemen lost their lives fighting for Afghanistan. In your interaction with the Afghan forces, do you feel that they tried as best as they could under very trying circumstances to fight? Or is President Biden correct that they were relying too much on the U.S.? It's not our job and they really weren't fighting enough for their country. No, I think it's really unfair to blame the Afghans for not fighting. Uh, More Afghan uh, soldiers and police have died in one year in Afghanistan fighting this U.S.-backed war than American soldiers in the entire 20 years. The problem with the Afghan forces at two levels. On one level, you have the commandos who are used as firefighters all over the place, and I've embedded with them uh, a bunch of times. They're super impressive people. You can see that, for the most part, that they have worked closely with Americans. They're organized, they're dedicated, they believe in their mission, and they have suffered terribly because every big... Uh, fight that happens in Afghanistan, these guys are there and they're losing their friends. They don't get the same medical support that U.S. soldiers have if they get wounded. Their their families depend on them for income. And so they're fighting without uh, without the support that they that they should get. And on the other hand, you have at the lower level, you've got police and soldiers who are just on the front lines. And the problem with those guys is that their leadership is really bad and their leadership steal their food or don't give them uniforms. They're very poorly led. And their leaders are backed by the West. And so when you have these two tiers where it's not working, it's not surprising that the moment that you remove U.S. air support and special forces, that the whole thing is going to collapse. And let's talk about corruption. A lot of accusations of corruption in the Afghan government. Did you write about that? Did you see it, hear about it? Tell us about that. 
Oh yeah, it was huge. I mean, to the point that if we heard that so-and-so, or we had evidence that so-and-so had stolen tens of millions of dollars, it almost wasn't enough for a story. You know, it had to be a colossal amount of money for it to make a story because these people were getting fired all the time. And in, uh, and often they were being protected by the organizations that were um, that were paying them. I mean, not to bring up the UN again, but I had another example where the UN had appointed a guy to investigate complaints of corruption. And he was using those corruption complaints to then make more money. He would go back to the guy saying, hey, there's a corruption complaint against you. So give me more money. And so the UN hired an outside person to look into it. Uh, that outside person produced a report detailing how the whole system wasn't working and the UN did not publish the report. They buried it, which then prompted somebody to leak it to me. You know, so when you have all of this top cover and this is happening at every level, whether it's not just the UN, but every country was turning a blind eye to the corruption because they wanted things to work with this leader or that person or it was too difficult to tackle. And so corruption was was widespread. And, you know, use the phrase, turn a blind eye. Uh, I often use the phrase of uh, the ostrich syndrome, where you put your head in the sand. Is that really a big part of this problem? The countries sort of want this problem to go away. They say some nice things. They don't pay attention until there's a disaster as there is now. And uh, that's what, one of the reasons why we're in this terrible situation. I mean, there is a lot of, it's really hard to go back 20 years and look at all the different points where things uh, could have could have gone wrong. But I mean, having, um, for, I mean, the US has been leaving for years. It's not a new thing. And so that also shortens the commitment because if you say in we're all going to be out by 2015 or 2016, everybody starts to hedge for that time. So for the past five or six years, everybody's been preparing for the US to be gone. Um, and it also becomes a matter of convenience. I mean, if you look back back early in the war, uh, you know, the, the US and its allies partnered with uh, people who were former warlords then given uh, positions because they had control and they had influence. And so it was easy to align yourself with this guy or that guy because then he basically sorted out that entire region for you. And so there were marriages of convenience, which then meant, meant that you had to overlook the corruption and the whole networks of corruption that existed under that person. And it became very difficult to tackle any of these problems without without taking it all apart. Jessica, what have I failed to ask you? If I, if I wanted to ask you the most important question of what you want to convey with your deep experience in Afghanistan, what's the question and what's the answer? I think that the most um, important thing for people to, um, to recognize is, I mean, an, an Afghan life is worth as much as anybody else's life. And we have a tendency to only care about things when they uh, impact our nation or people that are more familiar to us. And so I think that um, that's really important to remember. I think that's an important message. I mean, it may be that the U.S. doesn't have to play the role that it was playing. Maybe it's not our job to do this, but we also shouldn't pretend that these lives are important. And there may not be answers to how to fix things, but I think too little is said about Afghan lives themselves, whether or not there's a solution. So I, I respect and appreciate that answer. No, that comes from, again, you know, years of reporting as a journalist there and uh, events happening, say an explosion killed 10 Afghans. And that was never, never going, never worth a story because it was so frequent and because people had just become numb to that. And it was only a story if, you know, an American died. And that would be infuriating to our Afghan staff because they would be like, why does it matter that, 
you know, an American died when, you know, 30 Afghans have died in this. And another um, another example that I could bring up was the uh, Taliban captured a bomb dog. And so there was this uh, quite funny video, uh, although some might not find it funny, um, of a bomb dog that had been captured by the Taliban. All these Taliban fighters are kind of staring at this dog, wondering what to do with it. And that was a huge story. And, you know, on the same day, like 10 Afghan policemen had been killed. And so for our staff to be, say, OK, let's write about this dog that's been captured, considering how Afghans look at dogs. Um, it was really upsetting and insulting to them that we would want to write about it. But that's just the way I guess the media works. So. Right. Well, let's try to change, <laughs> let's try to change that a little bit. But look, thank you. Thank you for the dangerous and hard work that you did and all your colleagues for putting your lives on the line often to give us the stories that we need to read about and to think about and to try to understand this crazy, complicated situation. Very much appreciated. I'm going to add your book to my Audible uh, listening lists, uh, so I look forward to reading it. And thank you so much for being a guest here today on The Diplomat. Thanks for having me. I'm glad Jessica Donati joined me for this episode of The Diplomat. Her experience as a journalist stationed in Afghanistan, a very dangerous country, allowed her to share a view from a unique perspective. I'm looking forward to listening to her book, Eagle Down, The Last of the Special Forces Fighting the Forever War, to learn more about the mess and the tragedy of Afghanistan. If you found this podcast informative, please do share it and other podcasts with your friends and family. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever podcasts can be heard. I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat. Brought to you by Newsweek.